asks and he shows up and he's, he's new. He's in his new body and he's like, I want to try some... I'm hungry. Get me an apple. Ugh, apples are horrible. It's a new mouth. New rules. I need to try something else. Yogurt. Yogurt's horrible. Ugh. You're Scottish. Fry something. Bacon. Great. I love bacon. Bacon's horrible. Beans. Ugh, beans. You're trying to poison me. And <laughs> bread and butter. Ah, it's terrible. I know what I need. Fish fingers and custard. FYI, I have tried fish fingers and custard. <laughs> I'm going to tell you now, guys. And ladies, it's... Uh, it's just disappointing. Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylogue team. So today we're going to talk about Doctor Who! Yes! Um, and as always, uh, getting... are we putting music to this one? Uh, yeah, can I have the Doctor Who theme? Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, we don't do sing it, just put it underneath. Got it. Uh, as always, you can get in touch. You're singing it in your head, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you can get in touch. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Story Toolkit, and you can email us through the website thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com. This episode is brought to you finally uh, because we've had a number of people ask us to do uh, an episode on horror. That's right. Um, and we've sort of gently resisted it. I've wanted to do one on Alien for a while. Yeah, I've resisted it. He's resisted it. Yeah. Uh, right. but, th- but thank you in particular to uh, Matt in China, Justin in Michigan, and Mike in Pasadena. I, I don't know if Matt, Matt Muller is actually in China. It's just his Twitter handle is Matt in China. It's all we have to go on. Yeah, I know. But anyway... Yeah, we're doing it because you guys asked. So, yeah, we have been asked about to do, about horror. I know people really like horror. One of the reasons I personally stay away from talking about horror uh, is because Luke and I are not big horror fans. We're just not fans of the genre. And a well, caveat with that for me. Mm. I'm a fan of the genre. I just think there's a lot of turd. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, okay, you, okay, I get that. The like, good, the good horror movies are in that sense. Yeah, I, I appreciate the genre, but I, I'm not a big fan of actually. In, in, I don't enjoy like um, consuming the genre. However, um, I know what it's like <laughs> to deal with genre snobs, right? <laughs> and I feel like it's not fair to talk about a genre you don't have a lot of passion for. And try and teach about it or whatever, because by and large, it it, it just reduces the genre. One of the reasons I have a problem with like a lot of the books of like the seven great plots or the seven types of story. We know that you have these ones. I always get annoyed because you can tell the lists are kind of just done based on stories they like. So stories they like end up in multiple categories and they're all richly defined. And the stories they don't like kind of get all lumped together. And it's like, but for those people who really love, like, for example, I might look at horror and go, I think there's really only two or three subgenres. But someone else who loves horror might have this huge avenue of knowledge and exotic, exotica, as it were, of the horror genre and go, actually, there's more than that. And one of the reasons that I, I can do, I, you know, I feel comfortable with the action book is I spent so long researching action so that I could actually have this much knowledge about that genre. But I don't have that for horror. I have enough. <laughs> I have enough to get by, if that makes sense. But I, I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about it so much because I don't think it's fair to people who really love horror to kind of half spoon feed you what I've kind of pe- picked up as I've gone. So I'm happy. So I'm happy to talk about horror, but with that caveat, which is, you know, it's coming from someone who's more disinterested in the genre than than you are. If that makes sense, so it's like I don't. I feel like you should know more about this than I do. Uh, so for, does that make sense? For the too long didn't didn't listen crew, Bass's basically spent the first two minutes of this episode going horror. Ugh. Uh, Here we go. Ugh. <laughs> uh, no, no. It, but so there are a couple. So in, and in typical fashion to prove this point, I've decided to talk about horror through Doctor Who. Right? <laughs> We're going to use Doctor Who to talk about horror uh, because uh, I made Luke. I made Luke forced him to watch uh blink which is the seminal episode of the series <laughs> seminal this was my first um modern day doctor who episode yes and luke of course asked do i have to know anything about doctor who and i said no in a similar way with doctor who, actually i've never watched it because generally when you talk about it you come to me like oh my god there's so much bad doctor who <laughs> it's so true my first my first episode of who was also blink uh, Will, who's been on this podcast many times, Will told me about Blink. 
I went, oh, I'll watch Blink. And then immediately I went, is all Doctor Who this wonderful? Have I missed out on this amazing show? Next episode, Pigmen in Manhattan. I am wrong. This show has a sine wave of quality. It's like the Star Treks and all that stuff. It's like, it's a joy. It's a, When it works, it's such a rare, like, vintage. It's so beautiful. But when it's bad, oh no, it's all gone wrong. It's so, so wrong. Um, and there are many episodes. You Basically, you need a friend who has trawled through. Doctor Who to tell you when to watch it. Uh, but if you haven't Same watched, with Star if you haven't watched any, Blink is wonderful. Yeah, it's really great. It's on Netflix. And it's season three, episode ten, I think. Something like that. it's called Blink. Um, with that in mind, then let's get into it. Uh, yeah, just synopsis. So I'm gonna s- yeah, so I'm gonna talk about Blink. Um, it's only forty five minutes. I really do recommend watching it before. Uh, yeah, we talk yeah, about it. It's really yeah. good. Um, and as I say, you don't need to know anything about Doctor Who to enjoy it. Beyond, he is a alien who travels <laughs> through time and space. But in fact, you know that already. Like most of the stuff that you would need to know is that he travels in a phone box. It's just the basic boilerplate stuff. Yeah. So it's great. It's worth watching. Uh, so we're going to get into it now. Spoilers. Okay. Uh, Blink is an episode, and uh, it starts with the- Carrie Mulligan or Carrie Mulligan. Is it Carrie or Carrie? Anyway, it starts with her. The actress, she's wonderful. She's in Far From the Manning Crowd. She was in The Great Gatsby. And uh, she was in uh, Suffragette. Never Let Me Go. Never Let Me Go. Uh, she's wonderful. And before she was Carrie, this superstar. <laughs> before she was Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, before she was Carrie Mulligan. Before she was the superstar. She was Sally Sparrow in Doctor Who. Who all Doctor Whovians believed was a person who should have been a companion for the show. And never was because she's awesome. And it opens with Sally Sparrow. Uh, she's in this old, dilapidated house, and she's tearing wallpaper off the house, and underneath the wallpaper is written, Beware the Weeping Angel, Sally Sparrow. Duck. Really. No, really. Duck. Duck now. She ducks, at which point a rock gets thrown through the window, hits the wall, and drops to the floor. And She looks out the window, and she just sees a statue of an angel with its head uh, in its hands. In the garden at night. That's it. And then it's she pulls more of the wallpaper away and it says, Love the Doctor, brackets, 1969. And then you get the great theme tune of... And all that stuff. So so what's going on? She goes, she tells her friend, um, uh, Kathy. She tells her friend, Kathy, uh, that something weird's going on in the house. And so she... She, she and her friend Kathy go the next day to the house and she shows the wall that says like how is my name on this wall how is this possible and she looks out and she sees the angel statue but the angel statue seems closer than yesterday what's going on with the angel statue there's a knock on the door she goes down to answer the door and it's someone there with a letter for Sally Sparrow her friend Kathy is a bit weirded out so she's upstairs and this person has a letter that says Sally Sparrow on it and he's like, this is for you. She goes, how did you know I would be here? I didn't tell anyone I was going to be here. How did you know? At which point, her friend, the angel, is behind her. And it's just looking at her. It gets closer and closer every time it cuts back to her. The angel's a bit closer. And then we just... She she disappears. And she wakes up, and she's in Hull. She was in London. Now she's in Hull. But she's not just in Hull. She's in 1920. Kathy's now in 1920. How did that happen? Cuts back to Sally Sparrow. She's reading the letter, and the letter is from this guy's grandmother. And this guy's grandmother is Kathy. Kathy goes back, somehow gets sent back in time to 1920, where she lives to a ripe old age. She becomes grandmother. She has a family. She somehow tells her grandson, "Here is a letter. You have to give this to Sally Sparrow on this date at this time." And she goes and he goes and gave her the letter. So this is getting very weird. She doesn't know what's going on. She's freaked out by it. She goes, she, in the letter, Kathy tells her, go see my brother and tell him that I love him and make sure that they're not worried about me. He works in a DVD store. So she goes to see the brother and the brother has playing on a screen, a, like a, um, a DVD extra, but it's of the doctor. And the doctor is just, it seems talking to somebody off screen. You can't tell. He's like talking directly at the camera, but you don't know to who. And it turns out that this Easter egg is a conversation that's broken up across 17 different DVDs. And they're 
in no order and it doesn't make any sense. And there's a bit where Sally Sparrow, he goes off, the brother walks off for a bit. Sally Sparrow is looking at the TV and the TV keeps skipping. And there's a bit where it skips and he goes, and the doctor starts talking about time. And he goes, people don't understand time. They think it's a straight progression of cause to effect, but actually it's more of a non-linear, non-subjective, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey ball of stuff. And she goes, that sentence got away from you there. And then the, the TV goes, yeah, it did get away from me there, didn't you? Wait, that's weird. Well, you can't, you can't hear me. Well, I can hear you. And she just pauses it and starts yelling at the television, right? She's like, she's totally freaked out by this. And yes, yeah, so this guy has got, there's 17 DVDs. They have these things. And there's this weird thing with the doctors having a conversation. So Sally is like, she's getting freaked out by this. And because it's at a DVD store, there's a, video playing and one of the people who works at the store just starts yelling at the a video come on you stupid woman why don't you go to the police they never go to the police and so sally goes to the police she goes to the police she meets a policeman the policeman is this young handsome black guy and she, he starts hitting on her uh and uh she she's she's sort of she's taken it with his charms because he's got this wonderful jamaican voice right and he, she just kind of he's suave and he's charming and he's telling her He's telling her what she wants to know. She wants to know about if there's been any other mystery, uh, any other disappearances and mysterious things happening around this weird house. And he takes it to this garage and it's filled with these cars. All these people drove up there. All these people disappeared. There's also this weird blue phone box, but there's no key that fits it or anything like that. And Sally remembers she found a key at the house. And the, the guy then goes like, so, you know, we haven't asked the big question. And she goes, what's the big question? You want to go for a drink with me? she's like what are you talking it's like life is short and you're very hot come on and so and so it's very cute he manages to get a number and he his name is billy shipton and he goes what's your name and she goes sally shipton i mean sparrow sally sparrow no and she gets really flustered and blushes and he's like yes like that and she goes off and uh he turns back around after she's left into the car park he turns back around into the car park and he sees the the phone box but it's surrounded by angels and he walks up and he's looking at the angels. This is weird. And then he blinks and he's disappeared. Uh, and he wakes up in 1969 with the doctor and his companion Martha. And the doctor's then goes, oh, don't just calm down. You know, don't worry. You've, you've traveled through time. It happens. I've got this machine. It beeps when there's stuff. <laughs> and so the doctor kind of just like goes, look, you need to pass a message to Sally Sparrow for me. But it's going to take some time. And then cut back to the present day. And Sally gets a phone call from Billy, who is now in the hospital. She goes to the hospital to see him, and he's an old man. He got married, he had, but he's an old man. But what he did is he worked in publishing, and he, then he went into video publishing, then DVD publishing. And he's the one who put the Easter egg on all the DVDs. And then he goes, like, and you have to work out now why it's these 17. I don't understand it. I just did what I was told. And he passes away because he's very old. Then she calls the brother when she works out. Sally works out why it's those 17 DVDs. And the reason is, they're the 17 DVDs she owns. And of course the brother goes, you only have 17 DVDs. So they, so she tells him, get the, get the Easter eggs. We're going to go to the house. So they go to the weird dilapidated house. She sits there. They've got a portable DVD player with a laptop. And they're playing the conversation. Because she realizes the conversation's meant for her. And she starts talking and asking questions. And as the thing is playing, it fills in the other half of the conversation. And the guy is so taken aback by this, he starts writing down what Sally's saying into a transcript. Because he has a transcript of the Easter eggs. So he's filling in the conversation. And basically, as they're writing this down, the doctor explains that he's got an autocue of the transcript that's being written. And she goes, how? It's being written now. So I'm a time traveler. I got it in the future. She goes, okay, right, so what's going on? And he explains that they're these angels who are after the phone box. Because what the angels do is they live, uh, they, they kill you nicely, is how he phrases it. They kill you nicely. What they do is they just zap you, send you back in time, so you die. As soon as they touch you, you you're, you're dead. You've been maybe dead for decades, but you're dead. But you go, go back in time and you get to live out your life happily, whatever, but that's it. And they feast on all the days you didn't get all the futures you didn't have all the choices you're never going to make that's what they feast on and they want to feast on the doctor's time machine the tardis because that will give them that's that's going to they can feast on that forever the only problem is if they feast on that it'll, it's like it'll, it could destroy the sun it could do all this damage because it's the tardis and they go so they want the key they need the phone box 
And that's when Sally realizes that she has the key, but she accidentally led them to the phone box. So she, then they start realizing there's angels. And it's like, then you've got the whole thing of like, he explains, however, they're stone when you're looking at them. When you don't look at them, that's when they can move. So whatever you do, don't take your eyes off them and don't blink. Right? And just, she goes, okay, so what do we do now? How, how do we stop them? How do we stop them? And that's when the doctor goes, Oh, that's when the that's when the transcript ends. So I guess something happened. I don't know what. Just remember, don't blink, right? And then, so now it's off to the races. The, the angels show up. They have to stare at the angel. And of course, there's these great moments where the guy is the brother is just staring at the angel like that, staring, staring, staring. He looks away for one second, turns back, and the angel is now inches from his face, its mouth open with fangs, and it's like it's just about to eat him. It's like ah, look at that. So the the run. They're trying to get away from the angels by looking. <laughs> they end up in the basement of the house where where the phone box is and the angels are in the basement with the phone box and sparrow and the brother and sparrow's like well i've got the key you know i can use the key to get in and then they notice one of the angels is pointing at something and they go what's it pointing at and it's the lights they're draining the lights right? so the lights are turning out so they tried they rushed the the tardis the angels are swarming on top of them. They get the key in the box. They're, uh, they're trying to get the open the door, open the door. And they uh, they find the lock. They put the key in. They open the door. They get inside the TARDIS. They close the door. Angels outside the TARDIS. Whew, just in time. And then that the an automated system in the TARDIS kicks in and goes. Could you you know you have one journey. You should have a special disc with you. And of course it's the DVD. They put the DVD in the TARDIS. The TARDIS then disappears, leaving them surrounded by angels. At which point the angels can't move because the angels are each looking at each other so as a result they are trapped for all time staring at each other in a circle and uh, the doctor saves them in that way and so they pick up their stuff and they leave one year later Sa sally is obsessing how did he know how did the doctor find out about all this how did the doctor get the transcript where did all this come from uh, and she's like she can't get on with her life the brother obviously wants to start a relationship with her but she won't she won't she just can't do it she has to solve this last mystery at which point the doctor just runs past the shop window with a bow and arrow and she's like and she runs out it's like it's the doctor it's like it's you it's really you he's like yes oh i'm sorry i'm a time traveler things happen out of order do i know you what's going on and she's like this hasn't happened for you yet oh it was all me. And she hands him the dossier of all the stuff, all the things that he needs to do and all that. And goes, you're going to end up trapped in 1969. And he's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, he's just he's like, here you go. When that happens, you'll need this. And he goes, got it. All right. See you later. What was your name? Sally Sparrow. Nice to meet you, Sally Sparrow. Goodbye, doctor. That's it. Right. And then it cuts to, it cuts to the same uh, voiceover of the doctor going, whatever you do, don't move. They're faster than you can imagine. Don't blink over a montage of every statue that is in London. Basically, just every basic grey statue just to scare the kids at home at the end of the story. In case they thought it was a happy ending, they'll never be able to be skilled, never be able to walk down a road without staring at statues. That's the end of it for the kids. And that's the episode. That's it. It's really short. Really great. It's terrific. Um, let's talk about Moffat then first. Stephen Moffat. Yes. Uh, so Stephen Moffat, um, he wrote this episode. And it's heralded pretty much if you go online anywhere and you go, you know, the 10 best Doctor Who episodes, the 20 best Doctor whatever. Blink is not just on the list. It is always number one. It is always heralded as the best episode of Doctor Who. It's that's just it. It's done. It's it's it's, it's just enfranchised as the greatest episode. Right. It's, I don't I don't even watch the uh, the modern Doctor Who, and still I I understand the Weeping Angel is iconic. Yeah. Not not only is it iconic, I was watching this with Luke, and Luke was properly like going yeah, <laughs> when the angels and move and like ah oh, like that. He was properly it was great seeing all his reactions, just like properly jumping out of his seat when the angel would suddenly move closer to because of course you didn't know what they can do. I'm so used no. to them now, but like it's great to have that little bit of magic come back because they've shown up a couple of times since then. Okay. Um, yeah, they've never been as good. They, it, I love the way Stephen Moffat phrased it when they brought them back the first time. It's like they were so good, they deserved a victory lap. <laughs> so they gave them a two-part episode and they flipped it, which was um, Amy, who you saw in the, the little girl, Amy. Yeah. She, the, they discover that the angels, if you stare at an angel too long, the angel, you become an angel. 
So the angel is like growing inside her eyes. Right. So as a result, she can't open her eyes. So there's this great moment where she's walking through a forest full of weeping angels, but she has to keep her eyes closed. That is, you know, what at the beginning yeah. uh, when I said I think I've seen the ending. Of That's this, what you said. I've seen somebody walk through a yeah. forest. With... So she's walking through the forest with her eyes closed, but she has yeah. to pretend she can see. Otherwise, the angels will know that they, she can't see them. Right. So they they're frozen. But they think she can see them, so they're all frozen because of that. But she's like walking through with her eyes closed. So they flip the whole thing instead of "Don't blink." It's "You can't open your eyes." Right. So it's the uh, mirror image of it, which was really quite cute. But um, yeah, um, the 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 angels have been fine since then, but they've never been um uh as great as they were in Blink. And uh, Stephen Moffat wrote this episode. Um, he wrote um one, two, three, four, five other episodes for the Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant eras of Doctor Who. He wrote a two-parter for both of them and another one, one-off episode. So he wrote um, The Empty Child and its second part. He wrote The Girl in the Fireplace. And then he wrote Silence in the Library and its second part, Forest of the Dead. So he wrote those episodes. And they're generally considered to be... Uh, other, I mean, Blink's the best, but the other other ones he did... The Empty Child, I think, won a Hugo Award. Um, and the forest, the science in the library created one of the uh, most interesting characters Doctor Who had for a while, which was River Song. He meets, uh, he goes to this place in the, fu- in the, he goes to this library in space in the future, and there's an archaeologist there, and she goes, oh, you got my message, great, fantastic, I'm glad to see you here, and he goes, uh-huh. She's like, and they're talking like that, and she's like, why are you pretending you don't know who I am? It's like, I, I don't know who you are. She goes, what are you talking about? And she pulls out her little diary, which is blue and shaped like a TARDIS. And she starts mm-hmm. going through it. It's like, how early is it for you? And then she starts realizing they've never met. This is the first time they've met. And you get the idea. Like, And she went, and it's like, who, who, and he's like asking her, who are you? It's like, spoilers, I can't tell you. But you're getting the implication that she's his wife. <laughs> and they've met out of order and stuff. And actually, that what who River Song is and how it builds up is actually really quite nicely done, uh, more or less. But so he wrote that episode, which is very iconic. And he wrote the Girl in the Fireplace episode, which is a really beautiful sort of tragic little one-off story. Um, and he wrote those episodes. And uh, he's a, he was a huge Doctor Who fan when he was growing up. He wrote a comic relief Doctor Who with Rowan Atkinson uh, and uh, Hugh Grant and Joanna Lumley and. Jonathan Price. It was like this weird comic relief thing. And um, so he wrote these things and then he became the showrunner of the series. And he only just finished now and the new showrunner is coming on with Jodie Whittaker as the first ever female Doctor Who, which I'm really excited for. But that's sort of the thing. So Stephen Moffat is the guy who created these Weeping Angels and he created a few other things and he created the... He, he ran the show for about six years, seven years. Okay, let's talk about the Angels then um, in yeah. relation to horror. So let's talk about horror monsters and the role of a monster. Yeah, so horror horror has something... One of the reasons I know something about horror is because... Um, uh, where it's different from action. Um, years and years ago, I took um, Bob McKee's um, horror day genre, which he doesn't do at the moment. He hasn't done for a long time now. But I, I, managed, I, I remember when he was doing it, and I managed to go, and I took one of the seminars. And what struck me about it, and I took it, even though I'm not someone who was interested in even writing horror, but I took it because I wanted to learn more about genres. I just wanted to learn more, right? And when I was taking horror, what I noticed was how horror and action are different. What makes them different? Because they both turn on the same value, They're right? both about life and death, and they both have sort of villains and things like that. But what's different is action tries to excite you, but horror tries to scare you. And so that quality of emotion is what completely shifts the genre. Because action is trying to excite you. So there's constant, constant elements of keeping a distance so that you can be excited rather than scared and traumatized. But horror doesn't. Horror tries to blur, build you and draw you in as much as possible in order to um, scare you. And one of the things that happens is the in horror you get monsters, but in action you get villains, you know? So horror's monsters are much, much... Uh, they're just inherently more scary than um, villains. They're often far more mysterious because it's much. It's very hard to scare somebody if they know everything about you, right? So they have to have a huge amount of mystery involved. They also have a capacity to sort of um, 
they have a sort of invasive power where they can sort of rewrite reality almost around them. Um, even when the even when the creature isn't supernatural, when the monster isn't supernatural, it has that kind of ability, which you can kind of see when you have that thing of like, how did the how did the slasher get from one room to the other? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like how yeah, yeah. Could, how could he get there that quickly? And that that sense of like their capacities kind of break the laws of reality around them is a very key part of horror. And it's why Doctor Who, by the way, because Doctor Who, you have to understand, like Stephen Moffat understood this because he grew up watching Doctor Who. Part of the fun of Doctor Who is watching it from behind the sofa. <laughs> right? Kids get scared. They like being scared with Doctor Who. They want to hold the pillow up. And one of the beauties of Doctor Who is that the Doctor is a pacifistic hero. And so he solves the problems, but without killing. He's not a violent person in that sense. He doesn't go and punch the bad guy in the face. He's not that. Mm. He solves them by outsmarting them or by out, like, out compassion by making some sort of compassionate thing. He makes them human in some way. He makes them less monstrous and less scary. So, um, so the doctors. I, I told you about this. The way I look at it is like he's the kind of the cat and the cat. Cat in the hat shows up in a grim fairy tale and like grabs the kid by the hand and goes, "Don't worry, I'll help you through the mm-hmm. the, the nightmare." Right. That's the Doctor. That's the nature of who he is. Uh, because the Doctor is just so heroic. You can't kill him. He's immortal. When he dies, he just comes back again. <laughs> he's like he's got. He's he's just he's so otherworldly. It doesn't work that way. So, but he's he's a wonderful avenue to do these kind of th- fight these kind of monsters. And so these monsters sort of rewrite reality. And when you've got a character who can bend space and time, that fits very nicely with it. Am um, I am I right in thinking that it's to do with power? Yeah, that, that rewriting of reality is having is having such a powerful. Yeah, there's there's definitely a power imbalance uh, because the the main character of a horror story is not a hero; it's a victim. And victims, by definition, are somewhat hopeless, in the sense of that they are not hopeless as a person. I mean, they're hopeless in the sense that they don't have hope. They can't actually. They don't have the power to get themselves out of the hell that they're in. That's why they're a victim. If someone can actually get themselves out of it, right? <laughs> that you don't, they might be victimized, but you wouldn't call them necessarily a victim in that mm. sense. Um, so, a hor- a horror characters, by and large, horror protagonists rather, don't have the capacities by themselves to actually stop the monster. Uh, they might get it over the course of time. They might be able to kill the monster, or they might just all die. Uh, but generally, they at least for the for the telling, uh, when they when you're introduced to the monster at the beginning and so they have no hope of being able to defeat it. That hope might show up over the course of the telling, but they don't start with it. So, for example, uh, just to take a really bad example, but why not? Final Destination. There's right. no hope that these people can ever actually beat death. Like they can't, <laughs> they can't. They can't burn death. They can't blow up death or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? There's no real hope. So they're kind of victims um, in that sense. But uh, Final Destination has other problems uh, <laughs> uh, because it's just stupid. Um, it just is. It's you just stupid. You could have pulled the ripcord on that sentence many times. Oh, you didn't just, have to say it. It's bloody it. stupid. It really is. <laughs> it's uh, get, let's get back. Let's get yeah. Back. Um, but so the point being is that they, they generally don't have a hope. Like how can you stop a guy who can kill you while you're sleeping? You know, Freddy Krueger. You know, um, or if they seem to have a hope, like they can blow it up, that turns out not to work at all. So, for example, an alien, oh, we can shoot it, it bleeds. If it bleeds, we can kill it, right? That's yeah. the predator line. Except, oh no, when the alien bleeds, it melts your ship, <laughs> right? It's actually worse. It's not It's not a good thing that it can bleed. Um, in Predator, you know, they don't have any hope to be able to get it at all. They can't find it, they can't, ooh, nothing like that, until if it bleeds, we can kill it. Then the hope kicks in, right? Mm. So as, the, as you build to climax the monster will obviously start to lose mystery and power as you build to climax, particularly if it's an upending horror story, right? If they survive. But by and large, the, that's where the monster kind of has to start out. Like at some point, it's got to hit that element where it's they can't kill it, they can't deal with it, um, it and it somehow rewrites reality. Uh, Terminator, right? Yeah. You can't stop. Can't kill it, can't stop it. And of course the Terminator is mysterious, because like, what is it? How does how come it's able to do that? It's not until it's finally blown up and it becomes a robot that you finally understand the Terminator. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, these, these uh, like with the, with the Doctor, for example, I was gonna bring Weeping up Angels, doctor, yeah. yeah, you don't know what these Weeping Angels are capable of, what they're doing or anything like that, until eventually you're informed that's how the rules of these things work. 
If you're looking at them, they can't hurt you. But if you stop looking, if you blink, and you're gone. That's it. And really all he does is set up the rules for that incredible sequence. Yeah, we don't know where they come from. We don't know anything else. It's not like they were given their names or anything. You know, they don't have a backstory. It's not like Freddy Krueger or, or Mike Myers where you find out or you know why these characters or Pinhead even right in Hellraisers you know why these characters have become what they are but the Weeping Angels we don't know they're just they're, that's what they are that's it that's how they work and beyond that we don't know anything else about them and um, and it, like one of the big speculations in Doc Two you know forums is where did they come from and one of the ideas is that people think that they are a form of punishment for rogue time lords hmm. that kind of thing which is a nice idea i don't know um well let's talk about the value then as well and the negation of the negation and how this deals with yeah that. so um <laughs> there's a great line in fraser there's a great line in fraser where fraser uh complains that a woman is using sex to get what she wants and then daphne goes oh as if men don't use sex to get what they want and fraser goes how can we possibly use sex to get what we want? Sex is what we want! <laughs> and uh, that is as great a definition between the difference between a villain and a monster as you can imagine. You know, a villain does things, does horrible things to get what they want. You know, they kill to get what they want. A monster killing is what they want. Like, they, what they want is they want you to suffer. They want to kill you. It's you. You know? Villains, you can buy them off. You can't buy off a monster. Um, and so they want you, and of course, the further down uh, the, the the value of antagonism you go, the the more powerful, the more horrifying the character becomes. So you want to go past death to something more than that. And you phrased it very well. Oh, but yeah. the angels do, yeah. Yeah, it's death perceived as life. You di- your your life as you know it is over. You yeah. die, but you live out this other life. Yeah, and it's a nice happy life, and everything's fine, right? Yeah. But it's like, no, mm. you're still dead. Like essentially, like it w- uh, they could have made it more gruesome and more fair- graphic by having them touch somebody and them combusting. You know, like like the end of Last Crusade where he drinks the wrong cup and he ages instantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could have that be the effect that happens when they touch someone and that wouldn't be as scary as what actually happens in the thing, which is even nicer. Because what happens in when they do that to you, it feels far more invasive mm. than just being touched and crumbling. This feels like, oh, you stole my life. Yeah, I got I got this other one, but I'm dead. I've been dead. For, like, I've been dead for decades. The idea being that if you had known, you could have gone and found your tombstone. Do you know? Yeah. So it's not just like, oh, I've given you a life, uh, but actually you're dead. It's like, you've always been dead. You were never really alive. You you died decades ago. This birth, like it's, you never, you were never really here. You know, there's this sense of just oblivionness and it's just like, oh, like just unravels. Everything gets icky and <laughs> and it's just worse than death. Um, even though it's completely abstract and even though the opportunity is there to make them more graphically violent. Now, because it's a kid's show, you couldn't make it graphically violent. But a lot of horror stories... people just if, go, you're extra- put- if you're extrapolating this, and if you're using for an a, adult a convention thing, yeah. for your own yeah. writing, then that's something you need to... Yeah. That's something you could think about. Right, exactly. And it's just... People like to put a lot of the, like how much gore and violence, and like anyone who's sophisticated about horror knows, that's that's not the way to do it. Mm. It's just not. It's like putting explosions in an action story. It's like that's not what you do. You just don't do that. That's 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 the shallow way of doing it. It's also that's like, confusing the spectacle for the substance. <laughs> Thinking about um, other examples as well, Alien. Yeah. The alien doesn't necessarily want to kill you. The alien wants to impregnate you. Yeah, it's worse. Yeah, it, it's not trying to kill you; it's trying to rape you. Yeah, right. There's so much sexual imagery in Alien, and it's it's not hidden. <laughs> it's just not hidden at all. Um, uh, and you know, I think I think it's even in, isn't it in the second film where someone go, where Ripley says it makes you pregnant. I, d- I don't. I think it's the second, second one. one. I think it is. I it might. I don't think it's the first, but it's this. I think it's the second one where she just she explains like you know what does this thing do? It's like it makes you pregnant. Uh, yeah this is just horrifying right it's just yeah so um so yeah these what the weeping angels do so these monsters you know they're not killable they're stone you can't kill them you just can't do anything about it you can't stop them right because the only time that they're vulnerable is when you're not looking so how can you 
stop them, right? Like you can't do anything about them. They're, so the, these characters have was, no hope of stopping these angels. Also occurred to me as well, like the the whole the, the name of the show, like yeah, blink. Like the the one thing they are not allowed to do is blink. Yeah. And how long do you think you can go without blinking? It's right, exactly. wonderful. Yeah. How how long? You like it's, you watch the show, like you keep yeah. your eyes open. You're like uh huh. You go. I can't do this. I'm blinked. I'm still out <laughs> and dead. Right. And it's just so you. They've got that great thing. So there's no hope that Sparrow can actually stop them, but the Doctor could. Mm. Uh, and of course, after the end of it, you discover she's the one who basically able to use the Doctor to save herself. It's quite cute, but um. So, so these creatures—they kind of—you know—they're these invasive things. They do the whole horror shtick of, you know, they're in one place, then they're suddenly inexplicably in another place, right? They, and then you've got all these other aspects of them where they can literally break time in half. They literally can rewrite the laws of history. That's something they can actually physically do. Um, but beyond that, they have. But the thing is, it's very important. There's the big difference. No matter how much power you give a monster. The real difference between a villain and a monster is not the amount of power so much, although that's key. It's le- it's more about the it's more about uh, victims versus uh, the monster rather than a, uh, rather than a hero. But the very important quality is a villain, uh, sorry, a monster, a horror story monster's power is invasive. Do you see what I'm saying? It's it's got a different quality of feeling to it. Because it's meant to scare you. It's not meant to excite you. So it's not just about putting people in danger. It's more than that. It's different quality of that. It's to make you as an audience member sort of blur the lines between fiction. Because an audience member... This is what I found so fascinating about horror when I took the genre lecture. You have so many psychological defenses to remind yourself that what you're watching is not real. And what horror has to do... Horror has to break them down... Well, at the same time, not actually traumatizing you, right? It's not supposed to be the psychological attack. But essentially, it's got to break down all the barriers in your psyche to make you um, get really scared. And one of the ways you do that is how you frame things and how you put things in camera and how you move the camera around when you do cuts, when you do this. So a lot of the time in horror, you will notice you get shots of people looking directly at the camera. So you're looking from the victim's point of view and from the monster's point of view constantly, back mm. and forth. So in Blink, you're looking directly at uh, from the vi- from the Weeping Angel's point of view at his victim. And then it cuts to the other way around, reverse. You're looking from the victim's point of view at the monster. Action, you don't get that. That wouldn't happen in an action story. It's, it's a bit further away, the camera. But in horror, you go straight in there. Tight, tight, tight close-ups, as close as you can. Do you think obscuring... Um, and obscuring things as well. Yeah, do you yeah. think obscure by by staying tight, keeping uh, so much off camera adds yeah. to that mystery and that? Fear. Yeah, because you, what happens is you put in your head, you glue everything together, and you piece everything together. So in your head, so your imagination starts playing. So it tricks, it tricks you into getting further into the story because you're you're putting things together, right? But again, if you make it too incoherent, people don't know what's going on and they don't get scared, they get confused. But it's it, it's part of the trick. And so one of the ways that you make that uh, work as well is you do this thing called step-down imagery, which is um, this idea of you make everything seem really simple and mundane and not scary, and then you imbue the malevolence into that. Rather than going full gothic, everything's scary. It's a dark and stormy night, and you know you're trying. You're trying to scare people. What you first do is you start off with really simple, mundane things, and then you slowly put that malevolence in in whispers, off camera and off page. You know, just slowly building it up, building it up, building it up, so that the audience is playing with their their imagination is fueling this this breakdown of the psych of their of their defenses so that finally when you start bringing in the malevolence fully uh they're they're hooked in that world whereas if you make it really dark and you push them away by making things really dark and confusing and odd then you end up in a situation where um you can't you know you you it becomes uh the audience is so pushed away by these attempts that they're not actually going to get scared they're not getting involved so with with Doctor Who, what Stephen Moffat did um, is he would find these sort of very mundane things, and he would ask himself, you know, what could scare a kid, right? What could be scary? 
And he would look around. And so one of the things he found obviously were these statues. He went, you know, how could I... I mean, think about this. How do you... It's a statue. It's completely still. It's completely immobile, right? But he was like, how can I make this a malevolent monster? And he created this whole backstory that then inspired this time travel mechanic that he could then... Because he likes to play with the fact that the Doctor experienced things out of sync. So, you know, he meets River Song, who may or may not be his wife, but the first time he meets her is kind of the last time she gets to meet him, you know? It's kind of like it's... you meet They meet the complete opposite ends of their experiences with one another, and then it's going to go backwards on itself. So, of course, you know, it's really cute watching that relationship play out backwards over time for one of them. Um... Or, for example, the whole run of Matt Smith was about him dealing with the after effects of a war he hasn't fought yet. The fallout of a war that he's going to fight but hasn't fought. So he likes playing with the time travel aspect. So he creates this whole thing out of these statues. Um, and then uh, in the the first season that he show ran of Doctor Who, he looked at, he just said he, was, he saw a crack in a wall. And he went, you know, that's uh, that's kind of scary to have a crack in your bedroom wall all the time. And so the crack in the wall became this thing. And how does he introduce the crack in the wall in this sort of fairy tale, cat in the hat meets Grimm's fairy tale kind of thing that I mentioned, the step down imagery? What do you do? Well, first of all, the doctor, you have to bear in mind, he's just in a phone box. Like that's, you know, it's not, he, his time machine, the doctor's time machine is not this crazy elaborate thing on the inside yeah. But on the outside, it's a blue phone box. That's it. That's all it is, right? So you see a little girl at the beginning of uh, the 11th hour, which is the first episode of that season. You see a little girl. She's by her bedside. She's praying to Santa and asking Santa to send a policeman to get rid of the crack in her wall because she can hear sounds on the other side of the wall and it's freaking her out. And then the fo- the TARDIS crashes in her, in her lawn and it says police on it. And he calls himself the doctor, but he's not a policeman. He's a doctor. And he asks and he shows up and he's, he's new. He's in his new body. And he's like, I want to try some. I'm hungry. Get me an apple. Ugh, apples are horrible. It's a new mouth. New rules. I need to try something else. Yogurt. Yogurt's horrible. Ugh, you're Scottish. Fry something. Bacon. Great. I love bacon. Bacon's horrible. Beans. Ah, beans. You're trying to poison me. And <laughs> bread and butter. Ah, it's terrible. I know what I need. Fish fingers and custard. FYI, I have tried fish fingers and custard. <laughs> I'm going to tell you now, guys and ladies, it's uh, it's just disappointing. It is not an interesting flavor sensation. It is just custard and then fish finger. Did you try it based on this episode? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There is not a small amount of preparation that goes into making fish fingers and custard. And yet you went through that whole thing thinking, maybe this will be tasty. I needed to know. I okay. needed to know, and I, I can tell you now, I'm not the only one who's done this, Luke, but uh, I'm the only one who'll admit to it. Now, so, fish fingers and custard, there he is, having his fish fingers and custard, and and uh, he goes, so where are your parents? I'd have thought we'd woken them up by now, because it's late at night. She goes, oh, I don't have any parents, just an auntie, and he goes, well, I don't even have an auntie. She goes, you're lucky then, he goes, I know, but look at you, leaving you all alone like that, she left you all alone, your auntie, that's not nice. And she goes, I'm not scared. He goes, I know you're not scared. Look at you. Box full out of the sky. Man falls out of the box, starts eating fish custard. You're not scared at all. You know, and I think that must be one scary crack in your wall. Right? And of course, and then the music just changes and all that. And it's like, yeah, the crack is scary. What's going on with this crack? And so this idea of just taking these mundane images and imbuing them with malevolence and then building out of it is generally a way to get the imagination uh, of the audience triggered so it starts running uh, and then you, that's how you hook the audience because as I said it's invasive horror goes after the audience it doesn't go after the characters it goes after the audience You're trying to scare the audience so the psychology the psychology of how it attacks the audience is very very interesting and so one of the techniques is this concept of step down imagery you start with very clear mundane things and from there you start to obfuscate and make it weirder and uh and and uh, more uh, disorientating uh because if you start everything's black you can't see anything it's disorientating you've got nowhere to go the audience is already primed for that so do you know what i mean it's not going to have much of an effect you have to build that up rather than just go start and of course uh and you know the greatest horror stories are always this way uh edgar Allan poe's um uh poem the raven 
Yeah. What well, What's the raven? He's just sitting in his room. Right? He's just sitting in a regular room, and then a regular raven comes in, and but the raven starts going, nevermore. Like that, and it just starts freaking him out. And of course, that wonderful thing, the idea of the shortest horror story ever told. Mm. The last man on earth is sitting at home, and there's a knock on the door. Right? And he's sitting at home. There's nothing weird about the home. <laughs> Right? It's not like the last man on earth sitting atop a pile of skulls encrusted with flames and blood and then there is a jabbing on the door. Like it's not you know, it's not ridiculous in this. It's like as mundane as possible, as normal as possible. Oh, nice and safe you're in your home by your fireplace, are you? That's when the monsters come. You know, it's that kind of thing. Oh, that's why so many people die in the bathroom in horror films. That's where you're safe. When I was um, a kid and I would see something scary and I would be trying to fall asleep and I would be terrified that, you know, the spiders were going to kill me for arachnophobia or something like that. That's not a rational fear, though. I think that's fair. Yeah. I've seen Australia. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, um, right. um, I would try... uh, 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 to stop being scared, I would make myself list five differences, five things that meant I was okay. Uh, like, well, it would like for for arachnophobia because the spider thing has stuck with me, so it clearly didn't work. But I'm it totally scared of spiders. I'm so scared. It'll be it'll be just simple stuff. Like if I could find five factual differences, like Between one, you... I'm not in America, and the spider right. in America. Oh, Two, I this like this. this. I like different. this. And I realised now. You, I wish you told me that. I, I just remembered. I just no, remembered. That's, no, I wish you told me that when, you, when I was six. That's a great <laughs> trick. Um, but it just, it just made me remember because the note, the note we'd written down was that a horror movie will try and get past the defences of an audience. Yeah. And it's because... Because Moffat had those mundane things just imbued with this malevolence, yeah. like what I was trying to do was distance myself from right. that. That's that's the inherent thing you will do. You'll try yeah. and distance, yeah. And so they have to kind of trick you into not being able to do that. So it's like, exactly. look how normal everything is. Look, everyone just has their own DVDs. What's the problem? Why are you asking? Why am I German? <laughs> Don't know why I turned German as I did that. But um, yeah, that's that. So that's the. That's sort of the concept of step down imagery. You 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 don't you don't put the villain in a giant gothic castle. Um, I can't say gothic castle anymore because of Arrested Development. Gothic asshole, right? It just messed me up. But you don't <laughs> you don't stick the like you know you don't do the Bram Stoker thing of behold the enormous you know the gothic gargoyles and everything and blood weeping down the walls. It's like no. It's a hotel. It's a regular hotel. And then suddenly one of the elevator doors open and blood pours out. But then the blood's gone. What's going on? What's going on? What's happening? Like that. And you just slowly twist the reality and make it like a nightmare. Mm. Uh, you turn it into a nightmare. You create the aesthetic of a nightmare. One of the uh, one of my favourite things um, I'd learnt about was Kubrick when filming The Shining. Mm. And there's some kind of theory in... Um, uh, film direction theory where things can't be symmetrical on screen but he would because it because it looks weird things right. need to be like right framed right so it's, it's, it's um uh so it's more natural okay but he deliberately framed um uh you know when the kids on the uh tricycle mm. rolling through it's deliberately symmetrical so oh, really? it just makes you feel weird when you watch it ah that's interesting mm. yeah it was the same with music right Use yeah. the wrong. You use different notes that you shouldn't be using, right? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing. I don't know what notes you'd be using. Pot- but... Potentially, that's a whole area of music theory that I've not. Yeah, up on, but I would have but... thought like you would use. It would be discordant in some way, and it's it's off kilter in some fashion. Well, the most famous one is um, the uh, the psycho. Yeah. Um, uh, the Hitchcock. Yeah. Psycho. That sound. That's discordant. And also, but also all, all the John Carter, uh, John Carpenter, rather. Synth stuff and everything. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned like normal things um, being imbued with malevolence. Right. And the, and John Carpenter, yeah. how things, aliens morphed and yeah. blood and pus yeah. and legs and spiders. Right. And yeah. Blah. Yeah. I, I didn't find that stuff as scary. But it starts off. I start. Yeah, it starts. It, start, it starts like they look. No, the, the thing is perfectly what I'm saying. The thing looks like a normal person. Yeah. It's just a dog. There's nothing weird about it. 
that's how you create that mystery. And then you start to bridge the gap between dog and weird alien creature that you're watching. How how do you bridge that gap? And your mind plays into that into the um, into the area of mystery, and it fills you in. But also, I, when I said like you know you don't bother with graphic violence and all that stuff, I'm not saying like you you can avoid it entirely. I'm not saying don't do it at all. I'm just saying like people will use it. <laughs> people use it because what's not what's on what is there isn't scary. So if I make it grotesque, people will be repulsed and startled, and that's good enough. It's like no. The the reason people go are oh, the best horrors are the ones that don't require any gore or anything is because they're so scary they don't need any of that stuff, right? Mm. And so if they don't have any of that stuff and you're scared, you can appreciate how brilliant it is. But when something has that level of gore, it can be very hard to recognize how much you're scared by what's happening <laughs> because so much of the gore is you can go, oh, it's just gore. Like, with actions, like, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just explosions. Like, no, no, you don't understand. It would be exciting without the explosions, but the explosions push you higher up, mm. right? But you don't know, you don't appreciate that because you can't tell all the groundwork that's being done necessarily. So it's not that you shouldn't do it. it I mean, it's just that there's a great sort of sense of, like, it's much like a comedy without gag lines. You know, if you yeah. can do a comedy without gag lines, well done doesn't mean you can't have gag lines it just means that the aim is not to use gag lines to f- shore up a bad script and it's generally why when people are trying to get better at comedy they work harder and harder at getting rid of gag lines because they want to make sure it's funny first mm. um and that so that do you see what i'm saying it's, it's a process thing but it's not necessarily a end result thing it doesn't mean you can't have any gore and gore and the grotesqueness particularly of something like the thing is something that can be quite useful and is totally inappropriate for Doctor Who because Doctor Who's for kids, and which is interesting, right? Because horror can be for children. Children love horror. They love horror stories. They love scary stories. They love boogeyman stories and all that stuff. But what we can't do with kids really is be graphic, um, because kids are so impressionable. You can't really be graphic with them. Anymore. You want to scare them. You don't want to traumatize them. Yeah, right? exactly. And then if you do things like you show them. Uh, really uh, violent, uh, sorry, not violent, uh, really gory pictures and use really gory language and foul language and stuff. That's that's too far for kids. But beyond that, it's you can scare them. <laughs> a blink is an example. <laughs> just, just scare the crap out of them. Blink's a, an example of the fun you can have with yeah. a horror story without gore and is appropriate for kids. Like it's nobody die, nobody dies in. Well, I sorry, they, they die, die, but in they a nice die, way. But they don't die. Yeah, and 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 also the doctor's really funny. Yeah, he's just funny. Um, I still the wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's there's a great. Oh, you're gonna like this. There's there's a in the fiftieth anniversary. The doctor meets. Uh, there's three versions of the doctor all hanging out together. One of them predates David Tennant. So you've got Tennant, Smith, Tennant and Eleven, and then you've got. The eighth doctor, basically, uh, John Hurt playing like an old doctor, mm. like that. And there's a bit where Matt Smith goes, Oh, it's all a bit timey wimey. And he gives a knowing nod to David Tennant since Tennant's the one who said it. And then the, uh, John Hurt goes, What did you timey wimey? Like that. And then David Tennant goes, I don't know where he gets that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's an adorably cute thing. But um, anyway, um, so, uh, you know, with kids, like, it's funny because Harry Potter, you know, is, is this billion. <laughs> billion dollar franchise kids don't mind being scared they just don't uh but there's this weird sort of thing of like oh we shouldn't scare kids we shouldn't do the dark stuff for children and it's like no kids are totally fine with scary stuff they love scary movies uh young adult fiction is filled with lots of the tropes of horror stories of vampires and werewolves and things like that uh so these these sort of horror monsters you know the Anne Rice novels and fact and all people love this stuff Kids have always enjoyed this. Um, and so uh, it's not something to shy away from depending on the age of your audience. And it's certainly not something that when you do horror, there's this sense of like, well, you know, you have to put blood and gore and be graphic. You just don't have to be. And most people, I think, who don't have any passion for this genre know that. They just know, I don't need to do all that stuff. And that if I can scare someone with just very basic, bare images, then that's even... Um, that's the high point of the of the genre. That's like it. Let's the standards of it. Put a neat little bow on this. Okay. Um, 
what would you say is the most important thing to take away? What from Doctor Who's Blink? Uh, I, I think I, I think the thing to take away from it is just how um, how much it does with so little. Because it's forty five minutes. Sally Sparrow does not appear in another episode of Doctor Who. She's never appeared in once before or since. The Doctor isn't in it. Um, the TARDIS isn't is it? In it isn't in it. It doesn't travel through time and space. It doesn't have big special effects. It doesn't have a big bombastic monster with a big bombastic plan to end the universe or anything like that. It is, it is such a small story. It is so short. It's so tight. It's so... And it's so almost not fantastical. It doesn't... It, one of the big problems with Doctor Who a lot of the time, and you get this with other shows that run this long, is they start making stories about the show where the show is just about events that have happened in the show. It's got nothing to do with anything else anymore. It becomes really incestuous almost. Mm. Uh, and this is one of the problems that happened with Stephen Moffat's run, unfortunately. It started sort of being about mysteries that he'd set up that needed to be paid off, but it's like, but the, it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just abstractions. Um, and but the Blink and the other ones that I mentioned that he wrote as well, and... Th- th- that's not how they are. There's just so, there's so little there, but there's so much gained from it. So so elegant from it, mm. and it's so effective. Um, and so it's just one of those things where, like, you know, you want to scare people if you're writing horror and things like that. And it's just like, you know, forty five minutes, and you can make that. And it's and it's it's the best episode in a show that's been running for fifty years, and it came out ten years ago, mm. something like that. Um, so it's just, um, I don't know. It's, I I just feel like, um, how, how little it takes to be good. How little it takes to be good. Yeah. Just how little it takes. When you really think about it, it's just so, there's so little to it, but it's, it's so well done. It's so well thought out and it works brilliantly. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. (laughs) Yeah. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying it's so, it's such a small it's such a like a little gem, mm. um, and it's just wonderful. Where and one of the reasons I don't like horror by and large is because it's always so loud, and it's just constant. It's like you know they have like a dozen characters, but the whole point of a dozen characters is so that eleven of them can die horribly. You know, it's like okay, mm. and so it's like okay, well you know then they get to the killing, and it's just kind of it's almost like watching murder porn. And I know it's not fair to say that about every horror story because there are horror stories like I like The Shining and I liked. Um, the first Terminator and Alien, and you know, but uh, by and large, I shy away from the genre. I'm not that interested in the genre because um, it's generally there's just so, it feels like when I'm watching a horror story, it's going on too long, mm. or it's just too loud or whatever. So it's it. So for me, I look at Blink and I'm like, I just love how it's able to do so much with so little. Um, and, and, and as I say, that I'm sure there are lots. I haven't seen The Ring. I heard lots of good things about The Ring. There are loads of really good horror stories I've not seen. So it's not just I'm not blaming horror films for why I don't like them, uh, but I, rather I'm trying to explain like why I can appreciate this one so much is because and it worked. I mean, I, I got scared by it the first time I saw it, and it just creeped me out when she go, when it, the first time he goes, well I can he, <laughs> just freaked me out completely. Um, and it's, and you just, oh, like that, you know, I remember I'm like curled up going, oh no, what's going on? It just, it, that sense of invasion is all it takes. And, uh, it doesn't take much to get that, but getting it is difficult, but what it takes to get it is not a lot. It doesn't need a lot of killing and a lot of this, just, just, just a little bit of actual, like, um, restraint can go a long way. Mm. Anyway, that, that's what I would take from it. Strikes me that people think that um, uh, writing is very linear and cause and effect, but actually, it's a big ball of story worry. Oh, Shall stop. That's you know, you can go wibbly wobbly. Wibbly wobbly story, story worry. Ball of stuff. Ball of stuff. Uh, in a way, in a way, I'm proud of you. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How long were you thinking about that? 
Uh, how long's the episode? Fifty-eight minutes. Great, fantastic. <laughs> um, anyway, I hope for those of you who wanted us to talk about horror, I hope that that scratched an itch for now. And I'm sure if we watch something else horrory like, we will talk about horror again. But I hope that scratched an itch for now because I know you, some of you were were kind of really uh, hoping for something on that. So I and, hope that, I hope that I hope that helped. And for anybody else listening, thinking, oh, I wish they would talk about this. Do get in touch. Yeah, we never got to maturation plots. Someone asked about that, and we should really get to it. Well, we shall do that then. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>